time I had become pretty afraid of him because it was nothing for him to just, if I said anything that he didn't agree with, or I said something too quick or had any kind of slight tone to my voice, he would not think anything about just completely just backhanding me into a wall. Have anybody I could talk to at the time. And I know a lot of people think it's easy just to just get up and walk out of a situation like that, but it is not that easy to do something like that. The verbal abuse was one thing, but the physical abuse was becoming more frequent. Welcome to the Real Talk 238 podcast with your host, Denise Lee, a licensed professional counselor and nationally board certified counselor in the state of Alabama. The focus of the Real Talk 238 podcast is to have real conversations concerning taboo topics that people in the church may find themselves struggling with or feel they may not be able to talk about. The topics discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast are intended strictly for informational and educational purposes only. These topics are not a substitute nor does it replace professional medical, psychiatric, psychological, or mental health advice, nor is it a substitute for a diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. right now. Let's get started. Hey everyone, today's episode has a trigger warning on it because it is about domestic violence. My guest today is Michelle Corbin and she shares her testimony how she is a survivor of domestic violence. You will not want to listen to this episode around young children because it could be triggering for them. Also, if you have a history of domestic violence, you may want to be careful about listening to this episode. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please have this number handy. It's 1-800-799-7233. This is the number to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. You can also text to the number 88788 with the word START, S-T-A-R-T, if you need help to get out of a situation of domestic violence. Domestic violence is a very real issue. The number of cases is astronomical every year. It is not okay to be abused or mistreated in a relationship. That is not the way God intended a relationship to be. But if you are a victim of domestic violence, if you are in a situation of domestic violence, please reach out for support. Please reach out for help because there is help available. You do not want to be one of the statistics. And if you recall from my last episode, episode 31 with Tim Bazzelli, me and Tim Bazzelli talked all about domestic violence from a clinical standpoint, from a Christian view about the dangers. And as Tim said, the first priority is safety first. 
So again, if you are a victim of domestic violence or you know somebody who is a victim of domestic violence, the number is 1-800-799-7233. This is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And the number you can text as well is 88788 and the word start. There is hope out there. But if you remain in silence because you are scared, if you are isolated, then that is all the more reason to find some help available. October is the National Awareness for Domestic Violence. And so I thought it was important to end this month out with a testimony of somebody who survived a situation of domestic violence. Again, this episode should not be heard around young children. And if you do have a history of domestic violence, just be warned that this may cause some very uncomfortable feelings. If you find that it still bothers you, then please get some help. You do deserve the right to heal and to be whole. And if you know somebody who is a victim of domestic violence, please share this episode with them so that they can know that there is hope. Now for time for our interview. Hey everyone, thank you today for coming to the Real Talk 238 podcast where we talk about taboo topics. I'm excited about my guest today. She is a longtime friend. Her name is Michelle Corbin. She lives in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and she is a nurse at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She is married to Shannon and they've been married for six years. They have five children and no pets. She's been in the church 19 years and she attends church at New Life Church in Birmingham with me. She has been involved in ministry, doing my ministry and drama ministry. She's done that the last 10 years when she wasn't in nursing school. She describes herself as being spiritual, outgoing, personable, sensitive, loves to encourage other people. And a fun fact about Michelle is that before she came into the church, she previously owned a performing arts studio. She says she loves scouting out and trying new, capital N-E-W, new coffee shops wherever she travels. Hey, Michelle, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. And how are you? I'm good. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Well, you're so welcome. I'm, I feel very humbled to be asked to do this. What's the best coffee place? There is a place in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and it is called The Fainting Goat. And I have found that to be one of my favorite places. I need to go travel there and visit that. A friend of ours is up that way. Yes. Because she loves coffee. Right. Yes, she does. She's a coffee (laughs) addict. Do you have a favorite flavor of coffee? It would have to be pumpkin spice anytime, any day. (laughs) So your favorite time (laughs) of year is coming up. Oh, yes. I've already started. You've already started like, so, so I'm just curious, like when you're, when you're on your shifts, do you like put an IV of pumpkin spice in to get you through the night or the day? No, I, I honestly, I end up just making a big cup in the mornings. And as a nurse, you just kind of sip on something all day long and you kind of reheat it. I finally found a cup that stays warm all day. So hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yeah. So I just wish it was an IV. I'm sure I need it most of the time. <laughs> You know, I just love my nursing friends. I really do. And all those involved. And I have a very special place in my heart for nurses. And one of the things that I really wanted to do, and I'm starting to see it open up is actually provide counseling to the medical professional, especially during this time of COVID. Yes. But that is not what I asked you to come on the podcast for, (laughs) even though that's a whole topic in itself. 
It is. It's much needed. I'll tell you. I'm just going to back up a little bit. The day I asked you, God had dropped it in my hat about talking to you. And at that time, you guys were attending somewhere else where you were living at at the time. So you weren't able to visit that often. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about it that morning and I'm on my way to church and lo and behold, I walk in the door and there you are. And I was like, wow, what great timing is that? (laughs) (laughs) God is so good. He is. When I first met you though, we had, we had just started going to new life and I did not know a lot of your backstory. I knew you was going to nursing school and you really did inspire me because I'm thinking, okay, here you're going through nursing school. Well, if you can do that, then I can go to school to be a therapist. So it's one of those things. You never know how you impact somebody's life. So I didn't know a lot of your backstory. I knew you had kids. What was going on in your life at that time? Or like even right before that? Well, right before that, I had just gone through a pretty terrible divorce and we were relatively new in the church. Just, we had only been in maybe four years at that time. When we got into the church or the way that we got into the church is we were in a restaurant one evening right there near the church. And it was my husband at the time and I and two of our children, and they were very small at the time. So we were trying to find a church. I came out of an assembly of God church. I actually had the Holy Ghost, but I had no idea how to use the Holy Ghost. I knew nothing about holiness. All I knew is that I had the Holy Ghost, but my church at the time that I had been going to the Assembly of God Church that we actually were going to when we first got married ended up going through a really big church split. So it was obliterated almost. It became null and void. And I had been going there for, you know, quite a while. We were displaced, if you would say. And so we were trying to find somewhere to go because our children were getting older. We had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at the time. And we wanted somewhere that they could go and they could be brought up in. We really had a good mindset at the time for that. However, the marriage was in a very, very critical state at this time. My husband had previous addictions to alcohol and popping various pills to go with that alcohol. Like an uh, opioid addiction? Pretty much. I mean, he had a hair salon. He was a hairstylist and owned his own salon. He was very, very popular in this one particular town that we were near. He had a lot of wealthy women that would come into the salon and they would bring prescription pills into their visits. He had a cooler set up and a little fridge in a room that no one knew about. Later in the evening, when he would do certain clients' hair, they would drink, and then they would bring in their pills, like oxycodones and different things like that. They would sometimes trade those for hair color and things like that because it was so expensive. And all of this stuff was going on in the background as we were trying to navigate our way to being in church and to going to church and having our family in church. We truly were grasping for straws at that time as to what to do. Going forward at the restaurant this evening, we are sitting there with our small children. Lo and behold, we did not know that there, we did notice there were people, you know, sitting all around us, but we didn't think much about it. And there were two gentlemen sitting at a table beside us. And there were a group of young people sitting in the booth behind us. And there the two of us were not really noticing a whole lot about what was going on, but we were arguing. I wanted to go to one church. He wanted to go to a different church. We couldn't come to any agreement. His drinking had started kind of escalating out in front of the children. He wasn't trying to hide it as much anymore. He was more of a closet drinker, that kind of thing. He was drinking his long, big, tall beer and the gentlemen that were sitting beside us 
is our now pastor and an evangelist that was in town for a revival. They were overhearing our conversation. And when we got up to leave to go out to our car, the pastor, which is Brother Sutton, had given a church card to one of the young people that were sitting behind us and said, hey, you need to go invite those people to church. He was a very young child at that time, probably like 14. But he comes out to the car. We're getting in the car, loading the kids. And we turn around and here's this young guy. And he's like, hey, we wanted to invite you to our church. And he hands us this church card. And my husband and I look at each other because we're like, we knew enough to know that that was God trying to direct us somewhere. So we knew that. He hands you this church card. Was there anything about that church card? Well, the first question out of our mouth was, is this a Pentecostal church or is this a Baptist church? You know, what kind of church is this? Because we did not want to go to anything but a Pentecostal church because to us, all churches of God and assemblies of God and those type of things are considered Pentecostal churches. So that's all we knew at the time. We knew nothing about UPC or any of that stuff. He said, oh yeah, we're a Pentecostal church. Well, you know, great answer. So that got us. We were like, we'll be there Sunday. And he was like, okay. We came that very next Sunday to church with my colored hair, my red hair, our earrings and leather jackets and all these crazy things. We literally came as we were. At that time, New Life was a lot smaller. So we really, really stood out. That was one of the first things I noticed. I had no idea exactly what was going on there, but I started kind of whispering to him and I was like, none of these ladies have on makeup in here. I mean, of course I had makeup and I'm having fresh out of the world. And I'm like, no one has on makeup. You really couldn't tell about the dress because it is Sunday morning. My grandmother would go to church and she would never wear a pair of pants to church. So, you know, to me, that was not so unnatural. And I'm noticing all these things. And he's like, yeah, this is different. But the people were so welcoming all about us coming in that it drew us because it was something we had never felt before. It was a place we had never been before. We had only come on a Sunday morning. So we left that day and went home and we discussed it. You know, all afternoon, we were just both kind of like in awe because of the differences we saw and we felt, but we were still kind of like uneasy and not sure what to do. Brother Sutton had asked us within the next couple of weeks, we just kept coming on Sunday morning at this time. Well, things at home were getting worse in the meantime. What was going on at home? The drinking had escalated, the popping of the pills. He was starting to not come home for hours at a time. When he would come home, and I had been on the computer, you know, doing different things myself and had discovered pornography was on the computer. I'm starting to unravel what is really at hand. At this time, I had become pretty afraid of him because it was nothing for him to just, if I said anything that he didn't agree with, or I said something too quick or had any kind of slight tone to my voice, he would not think anything about just completely just backhanding me into a wall and just going right on about his business. Everything became an argument at this time, and he would pick up a toy to throw at me, and one particular time it hit one of the children instead and knocked the child over. And I had kind of, I didn't really have anybody I could talk to at the time, and I know a lot of people think it's easy just to just get up and walk out of a situation like that, but it is not that easy to do something like that. The verbal abuse was one thing, but the physical abuse was becoming more frequent and and more often. That is true. People don't realize how hard it is to leave it, especially being a woman. I think for a man, you know, domestic violence does happen where the victim is the man, but oftentimes the victim's the woman because women as a whole, we're the weaker vessel. 
and men are naturally stronger. The last podcast I interviewed Tim Bazzelli, we talked a great deal about that. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, you need to go listen to it because we really get into like information about domestic violence. A lot of people think, well, why doesn't, why can't she just leave? Well, financially, she may not be able to, for one thing. Right. Two, he may be controlling everything she does. And I don't know the entire situation there in your case, but for some women, they are monitored, like how far they can drive. They are given a very limited amount of money. It, it just a lot of different things. And then the other thing, if there are threats of being killed, okay, there's fear of, am I going to lose my life or your, or your children being taken away? That's the other thing. So it's all these different components of why a person doesn't leave. And usually they've done research on it statistic wise. It takes about on average, like six to 12 times on average. Of course, that's an old statistic. It may be, it may be a different number by now, but it takes a while because if you can get away then it's like you can find that safe place and break free from that. Once you can break free from that, then life can get better after that. But it's going to take time and it's going to take healing. For you, so there was emotional abuse, there was physical abuse, and it was just escalating. Yes, it was escalating. So we, in the meantime, had started a Bible study at home with Brother Sutton. He was coming to our home to do a Bible study and we were continuing to come to church. About two weeks in to the Bible study, he comes in one night from work and it was super, super late, which would not be a normal. That was starting to become more and more of a norm, pushing the boundaries, staying out till 10, 11 o'clock at night. Now, mind you, we had one vehicle. He always had the vehicle. He would not let me take him to work and keep the vehicle. He wanted the vehicle. I would have no vehicle. I would have no access to more than probably $20 at a time and then had the two children there. So he wanted me right there at the house with the kids, no access to do anything or go anywhere. And this particular time, the Bible study had started. So now we were starting to get the word into our home. We're starting to get access to really things turning around. But instead, he had been at the salon drinking heavily, came into the house, and I brought up the subject of finding the pornography on the computer. Turns into, of course, a huge yelling match, screaming, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he walks out into the kitchen, and within seconds, he comes back into the living room, had me by the throat and down onto the couch in the corner of the couch, and had a knife right pressed right onto my jugular vein. That was the one moment in time where I knew, oh my goodness, this has gotten way past out of control. And what was happening is now we're in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare has crept in and now... God is really trying to move into our situation. And so that is threatening everything that's on him and everything that he's about at the time. And he knows that. So he is going to take care of business himself. It was totally God. I had to absolutely beg for my life in that particular incident. Thank God my children stayed asleep through this whole ordeal. And I finally was able to break free and get away from him. He ended up just be coming furious and he paced back and forth with this knife and I kept trying to get him to put it down and this went on for a very long time and finally he just took off in the car and left and I knew I was in more than more than trouble at that time I mean I knew I was very in a desperate situation so at that time you're doing bible studies brother Sutton's coming into the house the pastor was the pastor even aware of 
how bad the situation was, how violent it was getting? Not yet. So what happened on that very same night is I had gone back up the stairs, bolted up all the doors, everything I knew to do. He came back in wee hours of the morning. I was sleeping pretty much with one eye open. He came back like wee hours in the morning and I could hear him stumbling up the staircase. And I had one child in the bed with me and one child in the room next to me. And she was in her crib. And I knew at that time I was upstairs and I thought, there's no way out of here. And I started, I mean, my absolute instinct to fight or flight kicked in. And I was just praying just silently, just under my breath. And I, I was, I was so scared. I was almost paralyzed. And I thought, but immediately I thought I've got to get out of here. And how am I going to get out of here with these two children? So lo and behold, he stumbled instead of coming to the bedroom, he went to the bathroom and I heard the shower turn on and I heard him just kind of fall into the shower. And I immediately grabbed one child up under an arm. I raced into the other bedroom, grabbed the other child, flew down the stairs. The keys just happened to be sitting right there on the kitchen counter, which was never the case. And I grabbed the keys and I flew out the door and my heart is racing 90,000 miles an hour. And I dropped the keys and I'm trying to get kids in the car and the hair on the back of my neck is standing up and I'm just speaking in tongues. I didn't know what else to do. And I'm trying to get in this car and I get in this car and I went to, to reach down and to make sure I had my purse with me. And that church card that I had been given all those weeks ago were sitting right there, sticking up out of my purse. And it's like, God spoke to me as audible as you could ever imagine. And he said, call the man on that church card, call the pastor. And it's two to three o'clock in the morning and I'm shaking so bad. And I called and I thought, I have no choice. I've got to have help. And I called after I got out of the driveway and down the road and I pulled over on the side of the road and I called the number and he answered the phone. And when I heard his voice, I totally just collapsed. I just cried so hard. He didn't even know who it was. And when I was finally able to regain my voice and let him know what was going on, he said, do you have somewhere you can go? That was the first, you know, he's very calm. He's very level-headed. He's like, do you have somewhere you can go that you would be safe? And I said, I can call my mom and I, we can go to her house. And he said, do you think he will come there? And I said, well, there's a chance he will come there if he has not passed out already. And we just go through a small conversation with that. And uh, he said, we had Bible study scheduled for the next morning. And he said, do not go back to that home. You meet me on the porch, the doorstep in the morning, and we're going to get this taken care of. So he made sure I had somewhere to go that night. So I hung up the phone with him. I called my mom and I told her, I said, we're coming there. The kids and I, I said, don't ask me any questions. I said, please just let us come there and stay. And I'll tell you about it. Whatever. She didn't ask any questions. She was, you know, perfectly great about the whole thing. We went there and we're able to stay there for the night. So the next morning we go back to the home. We meet brother Sutton out on the porch. He did not show up for Bible study. So he had left. I called him to see if he was coming to the Bible study. He said, no, that he had a hair appointment. So brother Sutton immediately said, I'm going to go to the salon. And he said, I'm going to talk to him there. So he left, went to the salon. There was no hair appointment. He was just sitting there in the chair. Brother Sutton got him. They came back to the home. We put up the Bible study chart and he was like, we've got to get down to business. Everything unfolded at that moment. 
everything that had been going on. So that was Brother Sutton's first time to hear everything that really was going on and how bad it had gotten. I had left to go take the children to school. You know, we just tried to keep things as normal as we could for them during this scenario. He stayed there at the home and he and Brother Sutton talked and he agreed to be baptized that night because he had not been baptized. He did not have the Holy Ghost or any of these things yet. So we went to the church that night and it was just like Stephen and Ashley and Brother Sutton and I and him. And we went to that altar. And when I tell you, he frothed out every demon imaginable at that altar that night. And it was just the four of us. And it was midnight on that night when all this happened. Needless to say, I had been baptized in the titles. I didn't even get the whole thing yet. So I just agreed to be baptized again right with him. You know, Brother Sutton knew, but I didn't. I went ahead and was baptized. So to the best of my knowledge, I thought that he really was going to change everything at that moment because now he has the Holy Ghost. Now he's gotten all those demons out. We've prayed for him. It was just this huge, huge ordeal. From that point going forward, I thought we really are going to have a chance to save our family. That is not the way things went. It got better for a season. He actually went on and got his ministerial license. He started preaching. We would go out and evangelize and preach and all these different things. So for just a little handful of a season, things got a little better, only to get extremely way worse all over again. But by that time, I've got an army of people around me to help me this go around. Right. So God had set us up and got us exactly where we needed to be so that we would have help when the time came. That's just really where it went from there. And he ended up getting locked up and got a DUI and ran from the police and all these things. And by that time, I've got so much PTSD built up from everything I've been through because it is so very real. It happens behind closed doors. And then that same person would come to church on Sundays and worship and, and all these things and be, and everyone thought he was so fantastic. He was very much a people person. And the whole time I was sitting on the pew wanting to crawl under the pew because I was hurting so bad in silence because I wanted so much to give the opportunity to the person, to him, to do the right thing and to get everything together. And I wanted so that to happen so bad at that time because I did have a family and I did have children and I did have all these things. At that point in time, when you're talking about wanting to hide under the, the pew because you're hurting so bad under the seat. He's involved in ministries. And it's interesting you say that because when I was talking to Tim, one of the things I had mentioned about is in these pastors' home, in these ministers' homes, where on the outside it looks picture perfect, but behind the scenes, you have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. Thankfully, it's not like that in every minister's home, but there are those few out there. And I think that's so important that you you do talk about that because there is women out there. They think they're the only ones, or they think that nobody else knows that they're going through that. But the reality is there are people out there that are going through domestic violence that are living in fear and having to put up a front, which is really sad to say. But so at that time, you're dealing with all this emotional stuff. You got PTSD going on, which is a very real thing. I have PTSD. And there are days it's challenging. It is quite challenging. But then there are days it's pretty good. You know, always can tell how you make progress by the good days compared to the not so great days. 
So then it got worse again. Yes. And then he gets arrested. Yes. He gets arrested and for a DUI and then he ends up getting out. He served his time. Right before that, I started seeing beer caps were underneath the seat or beside the seat. Of course, by this time, we're out evangelizing and preaching and I'm trying to figure out if these are new. Of course, he's going to deny it. I already know that going in. What unravels him this second go around? This was all prior to getting arrested. I'm sorry. I'm backing up my story just a tad. This was the second go around. We go on vacation to the beach. And at this time, we have a young person in the church that's living with us that had a bad home situation. She went with us on vacation to the beach. And when we were at the beach, we're going to visit a church because when we go on vacation, we always try to go to church. We don't try to skirt that just because we're away and it's Sunday. We had made a plan to go to a church and they had a Bible study of some sort the next night after we had gotten there. He wanted to go to that Bible study. So he left the children and I and the teenage girl that was living with us at the room and he went to this Bible study and it was about 30 minutes away and we were all just decided to stay on the beach and all the kids had been playing, having a great day. He goes to this Bible study and he never comes back. I finally doze off. I cannot get in touch with him. He has the cell phone. He has the credit cards. He has the keys. He has everything with him. I have nothing with me, but this little prepaid cell phone that had just a few minutes left on it. So I'm trying not to use all the minutes left on it. So between trying to get in touch with him and being so sleepy and tired, I end up finally dozing off. I get a call at 4 a.m. from one of our church friends and he has been arrested. When he left the room that evening to go to this Bible study, he decides to drink on the way over there. He shows up at this Bible study wasted. The pastor of that church, didn't know till a little later, ended up calling Brother Sutton and telling Brother Sutton that this guy has showed up to this Bible study completely wasted. The car, of course, gets impounded, but I don't know all of this yet until my friend calls and he says, so the car has been put into the impoundment. They've got all his property, the phone, the money, everything. So I have not a dime to my name. I have a cell phone with maybe five minutes left on it. And now I have no vehicle, but I have to have a plan. I'm praying, asking God, you know, what do I do? What do I do? I'm trying to come up with this plan of how I'm going to get this vehicle back with no money or anything else. So I go over to the main office of where we were staying. This was during Katrina and all this terrible stuff that had been going on. And I asked the lady at the desk, I said, my husband is hung up in a meeting. I didn't know what else to tell her. I said, and I I didn't have any money with me. I said, I need a dollar for the trolley, but I'll be coming back this evening. I can give it back to you. I thought I've never done this before. It was just worth a shot. I didn't know what else to do. She gives me a dollar for the trolley. She was no problem at all. And I don't know where I think I'm going but I've got to figure this out. I get on the trolley and I take my youngest child. My youngest child is a baby and he's in a seat. I get on the trolley and lo and behold, sitting in the front seat of the trolley is a man that I had known for years that lives in this area. We all knew him growing up because as kids, we would come down to this area of the beach and stay with another family. And we all hung out together. And his name was Andy. And he would always come over and swim and stuff with us. He was just a friend. And he's sitting on the front seat of the trolley. And when I pass by him, God says, there is your help right there. And I go sit in my seat and I can't cry at this point because I'm in survival mode. I'm asking God, I'm praying. I'm like, what do I say? How do I go about this? You know, what do I tell this guy? And so uh, he said, just speak to him. And so I said, 
Andy. And he turns and he looks at me and he said, Michelle. And he remembered me. Do you know how long it had been since I'd seen him? Probably 15 years. And there he sat. And I knew it was God. And there he is. Andy's like, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Walmart. He said, would you like, you want to go eat or whatever? You know, you and, and your baby. And I was like, yeah. So we go into McDonald's and I didn't order anything because I had no money. And he, and I said, well, my husband's in another town, which was the truth. And I said, he just happens to have everything with him and I don't have anything on me. And he said, oh, well, I'll buy your lunch. I said, well, thank you so much. So as the story unfolds, I'm thinking, I've got to call my sister. I'm going to have to get money wired to me to go get this car. I'm constantly thinking of what am I going to do next? So I started kind of telling him, I said, well, I'm, I'm down here getting some more minutes for my phone. I'm going to need to call my sister. Someone was driving the car and it got impounded. So I've got to get it out. And he said, oh, I'll get it out for you. I get in a car with him and this friend of his. I'm thinking this has to be God because I would never get in a car with a stranger. The bus does not go down to Panama City where the car is, number one. So he calls a friend. He's got an answer for every problem we run up against. He has an answer. Just like God said, there's your help. There's your help. So the whole entire time I'm trying to process that I'm having this help. And it's in front of me. And what do I do next? It didn't matter because God just had it all worked out. And I finally get the car out of impoundment. I'm able to get minutes on the phone. The first person I call, of course, is Brother Sutton. And he said, I already know what's going on. Hopefully you're headed back. What do you need? He's asking me all his questions. He was waiting on the phone call. He didn't know how to get in touch with me. So he's waiting on this phone call. And I said, I'm fine. I'm halfway home. I said, I'm not going to get him out. And that was the first time or the first decision I was ever able to make to not go get him out. I left him there and we headed back to Birmingham. When he finally gets to make his first call from being locked up, he tells me that he has money in a safety deposit box in Birmingham, tells me where the key is. He wants me to go get this money and come get him out. And I said, um, you're going to have to rot there because I'm not coming to get you out with what you've put us through. I said, I'm going to go get the money and we're going to start a new life is what we're going to do. That was the first time I felt like I had enough things in place that I could get away from this man. And I believe really and truly God had worked that out for me to get away from him. Now, prior to that, had you thought about leaving during all of the years through the abuse? I prayed for God to take him, honestly. I prayed for God to take him however he saw fit because I knew he would be the kind that would come after us. He would make sure I never was able to be around anybody else. He would have more than likely tried repeatedly, if not succeeded, in killing me. He knew how much my children meant to me. He knew how much I would not want them around him in that situation. And he would have made sure I was gone, removed, so that I could not have any of the things that I so loved. And he knew those things about me because there were several incidences of near dying from being backhanded, left in the gravel on a street to die as far as he knew. And I ended up hospitalized a lot of domestic violence before we actually got in the church. And then the episodes in the church became worse because now we've got spiritual warfare up against us. All along the way, did anybody ever try to intervene? Like here, you're going to the hospital because you've got injuries from domestic violence. My mother tried 
But my mother was like me. We were super afraid of the situation. And there my mom lived alone and she had no one. And she was a single mom. And she did not super push or encourage me to have him put away and drag us through all of that in the same sense. I feel like I really had no help until I got in the church and then had men around me and had people that knew what was going on finally and were able to stand in the gap and intervene in case things were to get to those points. I now had someone to go to and that had never happened before. So the plan when we went to the beach was Patrick started to know that I was getting a safety net built around me. So he was trying to get me to go away. He wanted to move to the beach and move to Florida because he had to get me away from this safety net now so that he could stay in control of everything. Right. To isolate you. That's one of the key major things of domestic violence. When you have somebody who is a perpetrator, an abuser, they will try to isolate their victim. So they don't have that support. They don't have that safety net for them. Exactly. They pick up on it quickly and they really try to keep you. And that's what he was already doing at the house by always taking the car and always having the money and always having all everything in his control so that I would have no access to be able to have any sort of life outside of us and our children. Now, did you know about the money in the safe deposit box? No, I did not know about the money in the safety deposit box. What had happened with that, I did not, of course, go get him out. I, we, you know, had lost our vehicle. It had been, you know, it was in the impoundment. We got it back, but then it got repossessed because he was not paying bills. And I did not know that either. I went and got the money and I had to buy like a little small vehicle. Someone in the church gave me a job to work at night delivering Wall Street journals in a very, very nice neighborhood. And it gave me immediate job access because at this time, all I had was I was a stay-at-home mom. I ran a studio one day a week, but it was an hour away in another town. And it was not feasible for me to, as all of a sudden, this single mother breadwinner, that's where it was heading to be able to keep my studio open and also keep a house running on this delivery route. Nevertheless, I was thankful to have the delivery route, of course. And there is another uh, part in the story that I, I did leave out. He had gone to Brother Sutton at one point in time before this whole arrest thing and had told Brother Sutton, and I think this is really what escalated the getting me away from the church. There was a, a situation where he had been trying to coerce different women in the church to, to come drink with him and so that he could have an affair going on. Our brother Sutton had gotten notice of that, but what he had done is he had gone to brother Sutton and told brother Sutton that I was not consummating in my marriage. And the reason was brother Sutton did not know as much about what was going on behind the scenes at that point in time. And no, I wasn't consummating very often at all in that situation because of everything that was going on, all the violence, all the, I mean, you're not going to want to be involved in that way with this person. So all of that had been brought back some. So we, all that got brought up and brother Sutton called us into his office to discuss this. And it was to be discussed with me as if I, he just knew how bad this can be in a marriage. So he was going to talk to us together, but he was going to talk to me and all because he didn't know anything else that was going on. So I jumped up and I let it all roll out at that time because I was being cornered as if I was victim. So now he knows that brother Sutton knows what's going on 
that particular next night, he forcefully took from me. And that happened before the whole getting away thing. So he was yanking, you know, me around all which ways. And when you're in a circumstance in a situation like that, you are trying to protect your life and you're trying to protect the life of your children. And then there's only so far you can buck up against these things when you've got a strong out of control man up against you like that. And in, in hindsight, later on, when I became single and we finally got to get away from him and I had this small child that he was our saving grace. He gave me something to focus on and not my problems. He was a blessing to his siblings. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing that that did happen, but not the way it happened. So it just adds notches to your PTSD. You know, it, it really does. So, but you're still in a marriage at this time. So he thinks he has that right. So eventually... It finally ended. Yes. The marriage finally ended. And what was life like up until you met your now husband? Because you did eventually remarry. I did eventually remarry. I, first of all, when after all this happened and I was able to divorce and get away from him because in hindsight, there were several affairs, adultery that had taken place during all of that. That was one of the reasons a lot of times the vehicle was not available and those type of things because he didn't want me out and about where I could catch him, you know, in all these situations. So there were several affairs that had gone on. So just to top it all off between that and the abuse and affairs, I knew that I was biblically in a place to divorce. So that's what I did. And that's how we got away. We were given a protection order that we never had to let him know where we were or any contact information for us for our own protection. The judge wanted us to go into hiding because it had gotten so bad, but I would have had to be away from my family and I could not deny them my children and us going into that. I wasn't willing to go there because I knew that God could make a way and he could protect us. And that's exactly what God did. So in hindsight, I was able to get away from the situation. It was very, very hard in the beginning. At one point in time, I was doing five different jobs at one time before I was able to go to school just to survive. God supplied every one of those jobs and I was thankful to have them. And I was very, very stressed out, of course, in the situation. But I knew that I had three children that had their eyeballs on me watching me and I was the only stability those children had. And so I knew I had to keep it all together and do whatever. I needed to do to survive. And we survived. It was hard, but the children knew no different. I would do things with them and take them places and all free library days, parks, anything we could do to let them know that their lives were going to still continue and they were still going to be normal and everything was going to be okay. And I knew I had to do all that for them. But I knew also in the back of my mind, I was going to have to have some sort of career. So I just kept praying and asking God. And I was walking through the church one day and one of my nurse friends said, you need to be a CNA. And I was like, what in the world is a CNA? I did not know what that was. I had no idea. She said, I, I can get you a job because she knew I was running that paper route at at night and the paper route was about to end. So God was just orchestrating the next steps, even though it's always scary when you have $20 and three kids and you don't know how you're going to feed them and all these things. So then I was able to go to school. The church helped me go to a CNA class. It was like a six week long class and I was able to get certified to be a nursing assistant. 
So I was very thankful for that. So that was my first opportunity at a full-time job. And I was finally getting somewhat on my feet. I was staying in a church parsonage, thank the Lord. And I was able with the full-time job to pay all my bills there so that we could at least make leeway. So then I realized once I started being in a CNA, I thought, okay, I think I want to be a nurse. So you got your toes wet into nursing a little bit with CNA. And you liked it. I did. I liked it, but I knew I didn't want to stay right there doing that. And I was like, God, if you can make a way, I will walk through the doors. I will do what I need to do if you will help me. And oh, help did he. He did. So I, of course, had to go back to school from the beginning because there I was in my 40s and had not been to school in 20 years. So I had to start back over with English and math and science and (laughs) psychology and all those things. So I spent a good two years trying to get all my prerequisites done. I was able to get a scholarship. I was able to get a grant. So those two things together helped pay for that. And then I finally was in a UAB going there full-time, getting all my bachelor prereqs because I thought, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and get my BSN and right in the, but I had already applied for a two-year college. Right in the middle of all that, I got a letter of acceptance for the two-year college. So I decided to go backwards for the time being because I needed to go ahead and get into nursing the sooner the better because it was just getting harder, you know, to survive and everything. I ended up going into getting an acceptance letter into nursing school. And when that letter came in the mail, I just remember sitting on the back steps and just absolutely crying my heart out because I knew God had really, 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 really made a way for me. And I, I was just reflecting on how far I had come in such a short time, but it was all God. God orchestrated every single step, every little moment he orchestrated. Was it hard? Yes. Did I have to get up every day and put one foot in the front of the other? He could not do that for me. I had to do that. Yes. Was there sleepless nights? Yes. Did I fall asleep with books all over me on the living room in front of my children just so I could hear their voices? Yes. Were there long, long, long nights of no sleep? You know, get up, do it all over again. Were there days I thought I could make it through it? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I say all that to say, even though it is hard, but when you ask God for something and you ask him to make a way and you ask him to orchestrate your steps, you just need to hang on for the ride because he'll do it. And it may not be easy and he never promised it would. And it's not just going to be the most easiest thing you've done. Matter of fact, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but the joy and the, the, the reaping of the benefit of it now. And I've been a nurse now for six years going on seven. It has been some of the best days of my entire life. And along the way, in the middle of all that, I had always told God, you know, I didn't date or I didn't involve anybody in my children's lives because I wanted to enjoy them and raise them. But in the middle of all of that time, right in the middle of nursing school, I met someone that lived in another state that had been through a similar situation, not violently, but had been through an affair, divorce, was in the church, a backslidden spouse. And it was somebody I didn't know from Adam's house cat. And I just told him from the beginning when I met him, you know, I'm in this for a goal. I'm going where God has orchestrated me to go. If you're there when I'm done, you're the bonus. I can't give you a lot of time right now because I'm due. I mean, I just laid it all out in the get go from the front end. He said, oh, yeah, I plan on being there. Yeah, (laughs) he already had it in his mind. He did. And he really wasn't totally looking for someone either at the time. That's what was so ironic about the whole situation of us being brought together. So we invested a long time of of getting to know one another, you know, in between everything that was going on, getting our, our children together because, you know, things are package deal. 
when you have kids involved, they, they need to be part of any, any kind of decisions and, and life changes you make, they need to be considered all along the way. And so we would get our children together every once in a while too, to make sure they were all compatible and everyone just fell in love with one another. It was like long lost siblings. Like they had just known each other forever. It's just kind of what each other needed, not only in their situation, but in ours as well. Fast forward two and a half years and I'm about to graduate finally. And he proposes and we get married after our graduate. And it's happily ever after. And it has been the most wonderful, (laughs) wonderful thing. I could not have asked for a better man. I could have not picked him out of a needle in a haystack. I know for a fact God brought him. I will forever be grateful and thankful. I wanted to jump over to something real quick because before we wrap up, I wanted to jump over because when you go through marriage of domestic violence and then get away from it and there's all this mental, emotional like you've just been ran through the ringer mentally and emotionally. And how did you get through those tough days? Because the days, there were days that were tough. Yes. One thing that I did and I learned early on when I came into the church, I did not know how to pray. I did not know how to get a hold of God for myself. I did not know any of those things. I had to learn those things. And back in the beginnings, we had a prayer room that was divided and the men were on one side and the women were on one side. And I would go in that prayer room time after time and I would listen and I would reap in and rake in all of that prayer that was going up because I sometimes was so whittled and so just weak. I did not even know how to pray even for myself, but I knew if I could get there and if I could put myself in that atmosphere over and over again, I would learn and I would be able to feel and I would be able to be carried somewhat, if you will, because I couldn't carry myself all the time. And I would, we had Tuesday night prayer meetings and we lived, you know, right by the church. So I was able to walk over there and I would bring my children and I would put them on those pews because I wanted them to hear and to listen to those travails and those deep seated prayers. And I would walk and I would pray and I would learn and I was learning and I was developing the whole time a prayer life. And I was learning how to use the Holy Ghost. And I was just, God was teaching me so many things. And when I would be on that, that paper route at night, I could cry out to God and I could have conversations with God and I could pray. And he helped me during those midnight hours from one to like four in the morning when I was all alone and I was throwing those papers and I would just be thinking and kind of like working through all of the problems. And all I knew to do was to be there every time that door was open, that I would have to be there. It was my surviving tool is to be in the house of God, to be with the people of God, to let people lay their hands on me, to let people prophesy into my life and to learn from those things. And I honestly was carried all that time, but also I was building and learning and strengthening on my own to know what to do. I did not run to Brother Sutton for every little thing because I was being taught from a pulpit from preachers and evangelists and all. This is how you get a hold of God. This is what you do. You need to pay attention to that. You're not just there to be a woe is me story. That's not what you're being put in this position for. You're being put in this position to, in hindsight, go help other people eventually. But you are a testimony. You are a walking testimony. You have no idea what who's listening or watching you, who's looking at you and seeing, well, she's here again. There she is again. There she is. She hasn't moved from the third row. Her life is a disaster. Everything's wrong. She doesn't have two pennies to rub together. Her kids are there. They're well-dressed. They're taken care of. She loves them. They're right there with her. She's teaching them. 
It's not me. This is no kudos to me. I just knew that I had to do what I knew to do. And then I had to build on that with what I was learning service after service after service. And those are things I did not know how to do until I came into the truth. And I had to learn at the same time I was in a disaster. I had to just say, you know what? Today I choose joy because it's not going to choose me. It is not going to wake me up and say, hello, Michelle, you're going to be happy today. No, I have to get up and say, today you're going to be happy, Michelle, because this is a day that the Lord has made. He's given you this day. He is going to do something great in your life. You keep hanging on. There is going to be a day and there has come a day. And I'm so thankful for that time. I'm so thankful for the growth that he gave me during that time. For every opportunity, for every person who sowed seed into my life, for every blessing that we received. There were times we would come home and God knew we didn't have any money and there would be groceries all over my back porch. Those young people would come at Christmas time and bring my kids gifts. You talk about humbling. I'm not used to being on the receiving end. It is a hard place to walk to be on the receiving end. You want to be a blesser. And I knew all I would say all the time, and I say, God, there's going to be a day I'm going to be able to pay it forward. Give me that day. Every day that I was in school and thought I couldn't make it and would sit around in those classes and think, oh my God, I cannot do this. God would remind me, you're going to be able to pay this forward one day. You keep going, keep going, keep doing. I'm going to give you something great to enjoy, but I'm also going to give you a seed that you can plant back in someone else. Hallelujah. He is doing that. Yes, he is. I am just overwhelmed with gratefulness. I am. Yes, he is. And I'm so thrilled because I've got to, again, I, when I first met you, I didn't know like the backstory. I just, I just knew you in going through nursing school and, and the struggle through that part of it, which nursing school is hard. So as we wrap up right now, I want you to talk to that person who's right in the middle of a situation of dealing, maybe they don't think they have a way out. They're dealing, they're living in a situation where maybe on the outside, it all has to look picture perfect, pretty, but behind closed doors, they are, they are living in a literally they're living in hell. And so just talk to that person. Well, first of all, I would want to encourage that person and say that God is no respecter of persons. If he can do what he has done for me, I am I'm nobody any different than anyone else. He can do that same thing and even more for you. The main thing I would say is do not isolate yourself. Do not stop coming to church. Do not lose your prayer life. If anything, it is time, even in those days where you think you cannot get up and put one foot in front of the other, you still have to. You have to dig your heels in. The enemy is very real and very much on your coattail. And when you are weak and you are vulnerable and you do not know and you do not have all the answers, that is when you have to let God step in and carry you and teach you and guide you and pray for him to orchestrate every single step you take from here forward. He will give you a way out. He will provide that when you can't see it. When you can't see it, he is still working. When you can't feel it, he is still working. When you don't know where you're going or how you will ever see a light at the end of the tunnel, you will. But you have to be the one to stay in the middle of it and say, I am going to do this no matter how 
how I have to. No matter what God tells me to do, obey him. Get yourself up under somebody. Find you a mentor. Be a mentor. That sounds crazy, but be a mentor to somebody else. If you get an opportunity right in the middle of the, your worst day, but you can encourage somebody else, God would send me people like that all the time to get the reflection off of my problem. You know, like Brother Sutton would always say, you know, you feel bad or whatever well, else. Bake somebody a cake. a cake. That's right. Bake them a cake. Well, there's little ways in your everyday life that you can put into somebody else and you would not believe how much that will pick you up out of where you are. But there's always, it's free to encourage somebody else. It's free to give a little testimony. Nothing but time. Sometimes we think we don't even have the time or the two seconds to do that, but it will do a world of good for you to sow into somebody else, even in your darkest of days, because joy will come in the morning, but you do have to choose it. It will not choose you. Amen. (laughs) This is really, really good. I I so appreciate you coming on and and sharing your story and, and giving hope to somebody out there who thinks that nobody else has gone through it. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so thankful for the opportunity. All right, everybody. So if you know somebody who is going through this, if you are the person going through this, please know that you can get out that you can, you know, God will send the help just in the right time for you. Again, thank you again for listening and share this podcast, share it with somebody out there who, you know, it will help until next time. Have a blessed and wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the real talk 238 podcast for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of the real talk 238 podcast, please subscribe. So you will be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to leave a comment, or there is a topic you would like discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast, you can drop an email at therealtalk238 at gmail.com. You can also find the Real Talk 238 podcast on Facebook and Instagram listed as at the Real Talk 238. As a reminder, the Real Talk 238 podcast is not a substitute, nor does it replace therapy. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. Until next time, have a blessed day.